Today's episode of The Rewatchables is brought to you by Vudu, a leading streaming app with a library of over 150,000 titles available to rent or buy and over 10,000 titles you can watch for free on their ad-supported on-demand service. Enjoy everything from the latest Hollywood blockbusters to your favorite indie films without subscriptions or contracts. This is where I bought my Fast and Furious 8-film bundle. This is where they have a bunch of good stuff in August coming up. Fatal Attraction. Might have to be a rewatchables pod. I will not be ignored, Sean. (laughs) (laughs) Head to voodoo.com slash rewatchables to sign up and start watching today. That is V-U-D-U.com slash rewatchables. Coming up, Reservoir Dogs. Chris, you're Mr. Yellow. Sean, you're Mr. Brown. I pick. Be thankful you're not Mr. Yellow, Sean. (laughs) Reservoir Dogs coming up. Hear your names, Mr. White, Mr. Blonde, Mr. Pink. Why am I Mr. Pink? Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool-sounding name. Let's go to work. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something right. What happens if the manager won't give you the diamonds? Cut off one of his fingers. The little one. Bam, 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 bam. You're under arrest, sugar. <laughs> Harvey Keitel, Tim Roth, Chris Penn, Steve Buscemi, Lawrence Tierney, and Michael Madsen. They're the Reservoir Dogs. Hey, Joe, want me to shoot this guy? All right, Chris Ryan is here. Sean Fantasy is here. We've been circling this movie since we started this podcast way back in uh, in 1994. Um, <laughs> it feels that way. Is this the most early version of the 1990s movie, Chris Ryan? Oh, is it like the first 90s movie? Is this the first 1990s movie where you go like, all right, what is the list of the 1990s movies? That's a great question, man. Is this the first one? It's 1992. It was for me. It was for me because especially if you think, if I think about the 90s in terms of like my life, like those first five or six years were so formative because it's like high school and the beginning of college essentially. And this, this movie changed my life. So yeah, I think I think it to me it's the thing I associate with the nineties. Does as it much as usher any- in a different era of there's this old era that ends in the late eighties with It's not the first. Not the first. What do you have for first? Sex Lives and Video Sex Lives and Videotape and Boys in the Hood, I think are the f- two big ones that kind of signal what this movie continues, mm-hmm. which is indie minded festival entries from young people who are gonna basically take over Hollywood for the future. And they have very provocative ways to tell their stories that we really haven't seen before in American movies. This one, though, I don't know if it was the noisiest. It might have been the most influential. This Mm. might be the one that meant the most to the most people who went on to go make movies. I have, here's my pick, Do the Right Thing, which did not come out in the 1990s. Right, yeah. It's a 1989 movie that we're going to do on this podcast at some point soon, but... I was, I was talking to Jay Adande randomly about this uh, this week. And he was saying the influence that movie had for everything that happened in the 1990s makes it feel like it was a 1990s movie. And it was sure. kind of, when you look at it on IMDb, it's a mistake. This movie, you know, it did not make a lot of money. I, I do feel like a lot of people came late to the party. Yeah. 
after Pulp Fiction and then circled back and rented Reservoir Dogs. It was more I, of a critical sensation and among real like movie nerds, it was like this is a major event, but I don't know that it necessarily made like a huge cultural impact until later. Yeah. Did it make a cultural impact, Todd? Do you think it did? did oh, yeah. It definitely had an impact on movies. I think it changed the way people talked. <laughs> I, think it, I mean, at least my, from my generation, I think it changed the way people like related to one another in social situations. It was like a hugely impactful movie. Like the dialogue, like I sometimes think I talk the way I do because of this movie. I mean, it's not overstating it to say that it changed okay, my good. life. Yeah. Like it definitely changed my life. Good. This movie. It's, it's sometimes I don't know because. I think we were all movie nerds and, you know, I remember where I saw this movie and it's like a lot of other the movies that we've talked about in this pod I would where also it was say a distinct in, impression. It re- kind of reminds me of like the way, you know, like when you're a kid and you get really into these things, like, you know, whether you're in Star Wars or whether you're really into baseball or something like that, it doesn't matter. But like, this is one of the first things I remember, well, okay, I've seen this and now everything else after this is going to be like somehow related to this. It's going to impact the way I listen to music. It's going to impact what movies I watch because I want to watch every movie that he watched when he made this. I want to watch every movie that has Reservoir Dogs as a reference that comes out after it. So every bunch of guys committing a crime movie that would come out and be like, with Shades of Reservoir Dogs. I was like, I'm in, I'm going. I'm going the first night. I got to see it. I got to see every heist movie. It, it it just completely shaped how you kind of like related to pop culture for a while. Yeah, my fear, and not a fear, it's just I do think it is one of those things. Like Roger Clemens had this game where he struck out 20 guys at Fenway Park and 9,000, like 10,000 people were there. But as the years passed, like 500,000 people were oh, there. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it became one of those things. And the reality is Reservoir Dogs did not make a lot of money. And mm-hmm. You know, it was not a runaway sensation by any means. But that was also a lot but it more set up Pulp Fiction, which was a sensation. And it, right. But even Reservoir Dogs' success at the time, relative to like what we consider a success now, I mean, it was. I think it was considered a success. I mean, Tarantino talked about finishing this movie and knowing that he was going to have a career after he right. finished it, like that he was going to be making movies for, for the for as long as he basically wanted to. Well, defining success is an interesting way to think about it because it only made like three million dollars at the box office. But it's, it was a huge home video release. Yes. And a lot of people, I certainly saw it at home. I didn't see it. I was 10 years old when the movie was released. There's no way. My parents were pretty permissive with movies, but there was no way they were going to let me go see the movie where the guy gets his ear cut off mm-hmm. at 10 years old. So I had to find a way to convince my parents to rent it from Blockbuster probably a year and a half later, maybe two years later. I didn't see it at the time, but I was aware of it. And I remember watching the trailer online, early internet. Mm. downloading QuickTime videos, which took wow, like a early, day and yeah. a half uh-huh. to download them onto your, your, your phone, through your phone line and watching it over and over again and hearing like Steeler's Wheel and not knowing anything about that and figuring out what that is and hearing all of the, like you're under arrest sugar and trying to figure out what that's from yeah. and all of the little tiny pieces and doing what Chris is saying, which is trying to figure out this pop culture puzzle that he had built and then cut up into all those little pieces and trying to put it back together again. It had that effect on you as a really young person, too, where I was absorbing everything at such a high intensity. Not like now where, like, I get something new and it goes into my head and then it goes out of my head. Everything that happened in this movie, I was like, oh, this is how you talk about comic books. Yeah. This is how you talk about TV. Also, this is how you talk about music. Listen to the soundtrack for probably a year after the movie came out. You know, you got it. I got it on CD or whatever, and I just listened to it all the time. All my friends listened to it, go over to somebody's house, the Reservoir Dogs soundtrack was playing. It was it was a, a cultural moment in a way that it's really hard to uh, 
to achieve now because like, like Sean's saying, there's just so much going on that it's hard to imagine something. I guess like probably for kids are, like that were my age back then, they may feel that way about Marvel. They may feel that way about Guardians of the Galaxy and they listen to the Guardians of the Galaxy soundtrack and think about that a lot. But I yeah. got to say, living in Boston, I was not having a lot of Reservoir Dog conversations for about a year. Mm-hmm. It was it was pretty underground. Okay, I and wasn't. I'm not saying I was either. No, no. It's just it, it was an it was an experience of one for me. Like it, it was just me doing it by myself. Oh, it was huge in my high school. But it was huge in your high school. Oh, Interesting. Huge. Yeah. So this is this weird stretch, and I lived in either Worcester or Boston for all of it. Where when a movie came out and it mattered, it really mattered in a significant way that I don't feel there's just too many things to spend your attention on these days. Yep. But this movie came out. I'm pretty sure it was right around when singles came out. Mm-hmm. It was like fall of 1992. And there was mm-hmm. a whole bunch of good movies that came out right around there. But these movies that just, I had just graduated from college that hit me in different ways. And it was just really important. Yeah. You and know, also I was like, for, holy shit. Like, for a lot of people, like they didn't know anything about the French New Wave or about the Italian spaghetti westerns or about like cool French crime movies from the 60s or whatever. And so when you see this movie, and you get to the commode story or you get to the first time when they cut away from the warehouse and they start, I guess it's Mr. White's story. Is he the first one? I think it's mm-hmm. Kaitel. You're just like, wait a second. I, how, how is this working? I think it's earlier than that, though, because when the when it starts with the Madonna oh, story yeah. and that yeah, argument, yeah. I just never seen that in a movie right. before. And it was like the kind of shit I would talk about with my friends in college at 2.30 in the morning sitting on our roof. And he knows it. He knows it because that's how he starts the movie. And it was like. Oh, wow. Somebody's actually doing this. Like, this is, I'm, first of all, I'm jealous of this idea. It's a great fucking idea. And then just that to have this theory on this Madonna album and then just hearing people talk of this, like, this is how I talk with my friends. Yeah. We're doing this now in movies. It's how we do the whole, this whole company. You know, we're talking about like crazy theories and weird pop cultural arcana and the things we love and why we love it. And he managed to fit those feelings inside of heist movies or, you know, high level like martial arts movies or mm-hmm. westerns. Like that's what he's been doing all this time is taking his general approach to when I just sit down and talk with my friends. Here's what we talk about, and then just putting that inside of a drug deal, which it was is like so that, smart. That movie we talked about on a previous pod about his cameo in Sleep with Me, yeah, and his whole thing about how Top Gun they were a big gay fighting machine, and they're just at this cocktail party, and this is really not very good movie that has good parts. And then this whole thing is in there, and I'm like, this is amazing. Like, yeah. I would love to go to a party where yeah. the, this the, guy was there with fucking weird theories like this. A lot of coming out of one of the hallmarks of the 90s, I think, is at least retrospectively, when you think back on it, it's like this, like, whether you think of it as slacker aesthetic or grunge aesthetic, or even just like that kind of ironic indie aesthetic from that decade that, that was around. This movie is not quite that. This movie is not modest. He opens it up with this scene of him talking for five minutes while Harvey Keitel and Tim Roth and Eddie Bunker, who really robbed banks, and Chris Penn and all these guys, they have to listen to him. Yeah. And he pretty much announces immediately, this is my fucking movie. It's yeah. a film by Quentin Tarantino. I wrote and directed it. These guys are doing my thing. They're saying my words. We're going to do long takes so that it's just like, you guys say my shit. And it, it was kind of breathtaking to see that because I was more used to this idea of like everything, nothing really matters. Everything's kind of like this cryptic joke. And it's not like this movie is like particularly socially relevant or like says anything about the world as much as it says about a mode of existence. But like, I still think about that to this day, about what balls it must've taken to just be like, here's how this movie starts. I talk for five minutes about Madonna. Mm. What the fuck? How could that happen? 
The other thing that was going on back then, so you had Premier Magazine, you had Spy Magazine, yeah. you had William Goldman writing in New York Magazine, and it was the first time- Entertainment Weekly. Entertainment Weekly, Entertainment is, Weekly that's how I became started. aware of this. It's around this time. I learned about it like probably through Movie Line too. 92? Yeah. So, you know, I was post-college in 92, but um, first 20 years of my life, I didn't really know that much about movies. Mm-hmm. I just watched movies and then would talk about them with people in my life and that's it. And then something shifted in the late 80s. And, you know, Sex, Lines, and Videotape was one of the first times I remember hearing the story of how a movie was made. The same thing with She's Gotta Have It, um, where the story of how a film got made became a thing mm-hmm. and yeah. it became part of how you sold the movie. And like, this guy, we found him. And then it came up that way. And it was also, there was just enough distance with the 70s movies where people were starting to dissect, you know, there's enough distance where you could dissect like the Vietnam era of all of those movies and then the Scorsese influence and the Godfather was becoming a thing. And I just felt like the intelligence was going up mm-hmm. for who for who followed movies and who I could talk about it with. And then in order, we have in 90s Sex, Lies, and Videotape. We have in 91 Boys in the Hood. We have Sundance blowing up. That's a huge part of it. And this. then we have Reservoir Dogs. And it's like all the exact time when Reservoir Dogs came out to me makes perfect sense. Yeah. And also, I think it's you can't really understate the importance of video stores. Right. And this is being the culmination of the video store aesthetic. You get you start with video stores and you maybe have them be like the beginning of this this, you know, platform and the the home entertainment or whatever. And and you know, like I remember there was a video store at the corner of my house that had maybe like 300 movies or something like that, 200 movies. But then you yeah. get you had chains like Suncoast or Blockbuster or whatever. But then there was also the video store where you'd walk in and they would have the sections like the kind that Tarantino would make at the video store he worked at in LA, where it's like this director or French heist movies or the or like or just uh like Lee Marvin movies. And basically, like it was a free film school or it was a low-cost film school. And you could go into yeah. these places, and if there was the right kind of person behind the counter, they'd be like, I'm gonna educate you about this. And essentially Tarantino is distilling that information and that aesthetic into this movie. You know, it was like he talks about how he used to program shelves at the video store he worked at as if it was like a film festival. But the thing that has always been exciting to me about that stuff that you're talking about, like filmmakers are always putting their their influences mm-hmm. and their homages into movies. It's this huge, you know, the George Lucas, Coppola, that whole generation was so influenced by the new wave movies. And you can see them putting that stuff in their movies Tarantino took stuff that was considered largely disreputable Trash. and made yeah. it seem cool yeah. and made it seem important and artistic. It's the marriage of the high and the low. Yeah. So it's exploitation stuff, but then it's also like Antonioni. It's Kurosawa, but it's also really like rando y- Yakuza movies. It's, yeah, like Wu-Tang yeah. martial arts movies yeah. and like grimy crime movies that are and exploitation movies and all these kinds of movies that you have to work hard to find. And that, it's not like renting's in the sound of music at Blockbuster. That was an aesthetic of the '90s too. Is this idea that you're taking like bits and pieces from of influences that might be considered like trashy or whatever, and you take basically a Beatles melody and play it as if like you're just three guys in a garage or four guys in a garage, like you're guided by voices or something. And it was like you can do anything. It was a real time of like creative. Uh, exp- exploration, I think, in that at that time period, Nirvana was like that. You also had no internet. And I think music and movies and TV had an outsized sense of importance, mm-hmm. you know. And the hunt was more fun too. Trying to find something. Well, that's why this was like 
this was a hunt. There weren't a lot of people who saw this movie yeah. for like a year. And yeah. people can say what they want now and pretend they saw it in the theater. But I wasn't there. I just don't put. No, I'm I just saying there. like. <laughs> Can't I, claim it. I really think the Pulp Fiction thing. By that time, the VHS stuff had caught up with this movie, and I think there was this year stretch where a lot of people were like, "Hey, it's also we're talking have about you the seen fact Dogs yet? totally the people who maybe did see it were fucking scandalized by this movie. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was not like a this is not like immediately this wasn't a date movie. Yeah, it was really provocative and on purpose because yeah. he was just like, I don't why not make a movie about bastards? Why not make a movie about absolutely terrible guys? That doesn't mean it's not an interesting movie. You don't want to see what happens and. As like a teenage boy at this time, I was like, well, this is just the cool, like the craziest, coolest thing I've ever seen. And I know I'm in on this illicit thing. I shouldn't be watching this. This shouldn't be on screen. There shouldn't be this much blood. They shouldn't be saying these words. They shouldn't be saying these jokes. And, it, you know. You know what else this era had that I just don't think exists now is you saw a movie like this and then there was nowhere to go after. It was like either you saw it with the people you saw it with. Mm-hmm. Or maybe one of your buddies saw it. But you really had nobody to talk about it with. There was no message board to go. There was mm-hmm. no like Google search to read like the five reviews, Rotten Tomatoes. You could go to your video store. That was one of the right. only so places you, you could that, go. But really, it turned into one of those things where like I'm at a party with Chris Ryan and we're talking, oh, you like movies yeah. too? What, what have you been seeing lately? I fucking saw Reservoir Dogs. Oh, you liked Reservoir Dogs? And that would be like a 10-minute <laughs> connection. Would, you know what you I did after I saw this movie probably? Is I, was, I went to a diner. Because it was like Tarantino movies made me be like, oh, diners are the place where I want to hang out all the time. Yeah. <laughs> I just well, wanna... I grew up on Long Island, yeah. so diners were the place where I hung out all the time. But you're you're right. And it was like a personality test. And if somebody liked yes. it, you were like, oh, we're friends. Yeah. we, I, You make sense to me. A thousand percent. Mm-hmm. Um, so talking about the impact of this movie in 1992, I just wrote down a list of things I just hadn't seen before. It was made in that specific 1990s indie way. It was a Sundance Darling, which was a relatively new thing. It's like, what the fuck, Sundance, Robert Redford, some douchey festival. I don't even know where it is. And they show movies, like, whatever. And then this movie came out. I was like, I fucking love Sundance. Uh, Bad guys arguing about pop culture. Bad guys arguing about anything that wasn't just like, where do we stash the body? I don't really remember seeing. Mm -hmm. The who was the mole question. Yeah, who's the rap? Which is the first hour of the movie is just really smartly done. We've seen that in a million movies, but it's a piece that every time I watch this movie, I forget how smart that was. Um, out of order sequencing. Novelistic. I have a part, yeah. I have a special category in here later where you get to nerd out about influences of this movie from the forties, fifties, sixties that I didn't tell you about. Fantastic. Out of order sequencing. I did, just didn't have a lot of experience with oh, like, yeah. Oh, we're going backwards. Wait, he's running from the cops. I don't understand. Oh, we went backwards. Mm-hmm. Like that disorienting feeling was really yeah. fun. It was confusing, but it was really fun. Not showing the heist was just an incredible move. Yeah. And I kind of still can't believe that they didn't show the heist. He probably couldn't afford it. <laughs> the ear, Well, he does. He says that. Yeah. The ear cutting scene became the hook. And I think it was the number one reason I went to see the movie because mm-hmm. somebody, somebody told was, me. have to see. Fucking crazy ear cutting scene. Yeah. Like, what? They cut the guy's ear off? Yeah. You, you can't even look. You got to look away. What? And then you kind of wanted to go. Um, cult movie in the purest early 90s form. Weird soundtrack, and then Tarantino with the backstory that they used to sell it. All of these were like very unique, distinct 1992 things that now. Yeah, and I also think that, you know, he spent a lot of time in the backwaters, like working in video stores and probably writing notebooks and like, and and floundering away. And maybe there's a world in which he never gets discovered, but 
it started to move very quickly for him after this. You know what I mean? Natural Born Killers, True Romance, and this, and then Pulp Fiction shortly after. It's like, it's quite a deluge from him. And he he yep. started... Did you ever work in a video store? Uh, yeah, I worked at TLA in Philadelphia. Did you have like Chris Recommends? Did you have that index card on I wasn't senior enough to have that. Would you have done the, that? They actually published every year... It was essentially like the TLA Encyclopedia of Movies, and it was all the movies that they had in stock. It organized in all these different ways. So it was essentially like going to film school. You know, when I moved out here in 02, video stores still mattered. And they were like great. The things that I remember were like the Tower Records was awesome Mm. on Sunset. Yeah. There were a couple awesome video stores, and it had like everything I expected, you know, with like... Johnny recommends this and it would have the shelf of Johnny's five favorite movies that he wanted me to look at. And it really was fun. I, I'm sad that that doesn't exist anymore. Now we just have Rotten Tomatoes. I got to Google. work at Kim's in New York City too, which was also a great video store. I worked in the music department, but there was like an amazing, very unique video department upstairs uh, on the third floor of that place. So the backstory, Quentin Tarantino, you remember what video story worked at? Video archives. Manhattan Beach. I don't know where this is. I wonder if Rosillo would have any insight. Send Rosillo there. (laughs) Maybe Rosillo checks it out. He originally planned to shoot it with friends on a budget of $30,000 and 16 millimeter black and white. And Lawrence Bender, who produced it, was going to be the police officer chasing Mr. Pink. Bender gives the script to his acting teacher, whose wife gave the script to Harvey Keitel. How does uh, this is all fucking crazy? Luck. Keitel loves it, signs on as a co producer. They get additional funding. Also pays for casting sessions where they find Buscemi, Madsen. They went to New York to get the New York guys. In New York. Yeah. And we're off. $1.2 million budget makes 2.8. 6.5 million pounds in the UK. How much is that, Chris Ryan? It's about 12 million bucks, I think. Oh, wow. So it was a huge hit in the UK because of Tim Roth. Right. 91 on Rotten Tomatoes. Seems low. Who cares? You're going to care about this. Okay. Big Raj. It's a tough day for Raj. Oh, no. Roger Ebert felt the script could have been better. Said the film, quote, feels what? like it's going to be terrific. But Tarantino's script does not have much curiosity about the characters. Gave it two and a half stars out of four. Said he enjoyed it. Said it was a very good film from a talented director. Quote, I like what I saw, but I wanted more. God damn it, Roger Ebert. How do you miss on this? It's not what you want. How do you miss on Tarantino's first movie? He he and Siskel Jesus. famously had a big turnaround on Tarantino, where they were a little After bit critical yeah, at first. A, that's yeah. par for the course for Raj. Okay, that's offensive. But um, <laughs> Kaitel, one of your weirdest bits. I'm glad you stick to it, though. Oh, well, he's batting 400 on oh, iconic cool. so he's movies. Ted Williams. I kind of wanted him to be around 800. Okay, okay. I think he definitely <laughs> voted for Westbrook for the 2017 MVP <laughs> if he was still alive. <laughs> The Basketball Writers Association. Please, please respect Roger Ebert. Kytel, here's his 91 to 94, Chris Ryan. I'm just giving you the highlights. Yeah. Oh, my God. Thumb and Louise. No! <laughs> Bugsy. Wait. Reservoir Dogs. Bill. Naked and Bad Can Lieutenant. For a the Piano and Pulp Fiction. Oh, Boom! I was just making sure you weren't going to do a Bad Lieutenant bit, man. <laughs> <laughs> So he makes those six movies in four years. I I gotta say, I do really relate to his character in Bad Lieutenant, not because he is an insane, drug-addled, broken police officer, but because he's obsessed with driving around New York listening to Mets games the whole time. <laughs> and being naked. 
<laughs> Bad Lieutenant is amazing if you haven't seen that movie. By the way, out of those six movies, he's naked in two of them. Oh, he, yeah. Kaitel's probably naked right now listening to this pod. <laughs> He'll break it out. <laughs> he's like, oh! <laughs> I know, I'm sure we'll talk about this, but Kaitel is amazing in yeah, Reservoir Dogs. Amazing. He's amazing. So good in this movie. I'd B- forgotten how good he is. Buscemi was kind of, you know... He was that guy who was in Miller's Crossing and Barton Fink and Billy Bathgate. He was, yeah. This is the movie he blossoms. Chris Penn had a nice little three movie run here Reservoir Dogs, Shortcuts, and True Romance. Yeah. Good flick. He's got a small part in Shortcuts. Is he Cody in True Romance? It's a small part in Shortcuts where he ends up hitting and killing some girl that liked him with a rock. I mean, it's definitely a distinctive part. It is. Um, I like that movie. He's one of the cops in, yeah, in he's True Romance. Sizemore's yeah. guy, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's remember that we we when we did the True Romance pod, we said we wanted them to be spun off as a cop movie. Yeah, him and Sizemore. I want to do a lot of nice guy Eddie imitations on this podcast. Okay. It's just Great. something I got, I'm gonna put out there right now. <laughs> Clear out for Sean. Madsen was the John Holmes character in The Doors. They didn't call him John oh. Holmes. Yeah, Thelma and Louise was the uh, he's the boyfriend. Yeah, yep. not the abusive boyfriend. Then yep. the, the good guy. boyfriend. Yep. And then Reservoir Dogs. Great run for him. All culminating in Species, where he gives one of the great performances of all time, two years later. Him and Marge Helgenberger, you really could cut the sexual tension with a fucking knife. Steak knife. Tim Roth. Huge star in Britain, apparently. The Brit Pack? Yes. Do you know about the Him Brit Pack? and Gary Oldman, yeah. Can you name the Brit Pack, Sean? Can't say I that I six, can. I got five names. Roth Oldman uh, is DDL in there. DDL is apparently in there. I don't think he probably likes. Well, it. he was in my. He was in like my beautiful laundrette. So I right. So yeah, I think yeah. he's like in Tom Lat- Hulse. Was he in the mix? No, they didn't let him in. The other two were Bruce Payne and Paul McGann. Can't say uh, I'm yeah. familiar with their okay. work. Yeah, yeah. Okay. they kind of faded away. Um, I'm gonna give you the five colors. You tell me who the characters were. Just want to see if you get this. Okay, Mr. White. Can I tell? Mr. Pink. Buscemi. Mr. Orange? Uh, that's, Tar- no, Tarantino's Mr. Brown. It's Tim Roth. Tim Roth. Yeah. There you go. Mr. Bond? Uh, Madsen. Mr. Blue? Is that Eddie, Eddie, Bunker? Eddie Bunker? Yeah. 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 Mr. Brown go. is Tarantino. Could you have gotten all those correct? Yeah, I think so. Okay. Uh, any Flex. other things before we go to the categories? Um, I, I don't think you can underestimate the rock starification of Tarantino and the fact that there's really never been anything like this since. There's never been somebody who emerged as a public figure, as a director, like he did. Yeah. Do you think it helped that he was in the movies? Definitely. Because so, of what Chris was saying at the top of the show. Yeah. That he, he put himself front and center in the first movie. And not only that, he, when you read the press from this movie, it's unreal. We, like, Sean interviews filmmakers every week. It's like we talk to people who are supposed to be talking to us all the time. On the big picture available on Ringer Podcast. Entertainers, network. athletes, whoever. They, nobody gives a fucking quote like this guy. And it's like, I was reading an Empire Magazine profile of him after this movie comes out. He's like three Guinnesses deep in a London pub. Yeah. He has to run off to a stationery store to get paper because he's working on an anthology called Pulp Fiction. And he's just like lecture. He's just like holding court. This is the guy who gives an incredible quote. It went a long way towards propelling him out of just being like Soderbergh or like a cool, interesting indie filmmaker to a pop cultural icon, like very quickly. This this guy hosted Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And would be the first guest on The Tonight Show with Jay Leno. Yeah. On the couch. That is 
Steven Spielberg doesn't do that. In the history of movies, there has probably never been somebody who who sought and achieved this level of notoriety. Maybe, maybe Spike is like because of Jordan, he, the Jordan ads. He is he is a, a rare yeah. comp. Yeah. That's kind of amazing, and it's almost impossible to imagine somebody being able to do that now. Now, there are a lot of famous directors now. There are a lot of forward-facing people. Like, Ava DuVernay is very vocal. She's very present. She's got a ton of Twitter followers. There's a huge universe around Ava DuVernay. It's not, it's not like Tarantino. Mm-hmm. It's just not. Craig, get ready for this one. Do you know I worked with Tarantino? Whoa. Fuck off. What? In what capacity? Yeah. What are you, you still holding out on us? What is, what's going on? The first year I worked at Kimmel. Tarantino was a guest. We used to do this thing called audience theater where we would write a script and then the audience would play the characters and we would pull the audience out and they would, they would, we'd basically grab them for the show and then we'd prep them and they would actually act out the scenes. So he picked my bit. I wrote a script that was a Tarantino parody. I can't even remember what the script was at this point. He gave me notes on the script. He really liked it. He was fired up. It ended with like three a three way shootout and just blood. <laughs> and uh, did it air? And he directed it. He was the director. He came in. Yeah, it aired. Do you it's, have it? I should get Jimmy to put that back up. It's actually really weird that you've never told us the story. I've yeah, been I fucking know, working for you since two thousand and eleven. How have we not seen this? I wrote like a six minute script that he gave notes on, and then was really fired up about. And you don't remember the like, name of it? No, I don't remember it. it honestly, it was sixteen years ago. We had a whole handshake and hug after. He was all happy with me and Tarantino. Yeah. So you're in the pocket of big Tarantino. Yeah. Then. Yeah. You know, okay. we've, we've talked about, do we want to work together? <laughs> yeah. I don't know. He's, He's doing, the right well. Material. doing yeah. well. Yeah. Whole yeah. thing. So yeah. we'll see. He's doing well. <laughs> uh, we're going to take a break. Then we're going to get to the categories. <laughs> Let's take a break to talk about a one-stop destination for quality entertainment and high-end living and Grand Theft Auto Online. The Diamond Casino and Resort. It offers a range of experiences for all kinds of players. Try your hand at casino games like three-card poker, blackjack, and roulette. Play slot machines with a variety of prizes. The Diamond Casino and Resort is an oasis of luxury with a master penthouse that sits beside the roof terrace with infinity pool and stunning views. Purchase a penthouse to become a VIP member. Gain access to a series of action-packed cooperative missions. VIP membership also includes access to VIP lounges, high-limit tables, and a range of special services via the penthouse phone, including aircraft, limousine services, and more. Experience the never-ending universe of multiplayer gameplay possibilities in Grand Theft Auto Online and the latest free update, the Diamond Casino and Resort. Access free with every copy of Grand Theft Auto V available now at rockstargames.com. All right, categories. Most rewatchable scene. Let's start with the first one. The opening diner scene. Opening scene of the movie. Incredibly important. Unbelievable theory about Madonna's like a virgin. Toby? Did it change your attitude towards tipping? I don't tip because society says I have to. All right, I mean, I'll tip if somebody really deserves a tip. If they really put forth the effort, I'll give them something extra. But I mean, it's tipping automatically. It's for the birds. (laughs) I mean, as far as I'm concerned, they're just doing their job. Hey, this girl was nice. She was okay. Leads to the tipping thing. A lot of guys coming out of that movie thinking they had a, a new, new vision of, of the service industry. How, no, how, I had worked as a busboy slash waiter for at least two summers before that right. and was very pro-tipping. So I was offended at Buscemi's character. Anybody who's ever worked in food service knows that you've got a fucking tip. That's I'm just saying there was job. a lot of people who were like, this bit, I'm going to like take yeah. it. Yeah, it was, you know, oh, yeah. yeah. How do you yeah. feel about how woke Mr. White is? 
Mr. White. Dry dropping knowledge about these women the, work very hard. Yeah. yeah. He has like the fucking consumer reports yeah. stats. He's like, this is the number one job for non-college exactly. educated women. <laughs> like, Mr. Break. White scaled woke back mountain. <laughs> Did you know that stuff. this scene contains subtle foreshadowing about the identity of the rat? No. When Joe demands to know which crook didn't contribute to the tip, Mr. Orange snitches on Mr. Pink. Mm. Mm. Oh. Mm. You know what my favorite, or it's what, a one of my low-key favorite details of this scene is? That, that a couple of them are drinking beers. Oh, at yeah. a diner? Yeah. yeah. That they have like a bunch of Budweiser bottles even though they're all eating breakfast. But I will say, when I go out to breakfast on a weekend, Budweiser or Pabst and a cup of coffee is my go-to. That is like a great way to spend your your lazy morning. But it's also a cool thing that happens throughout Tarantino movies, or at least a few of them, which is that it's something that will be happening in the morning, but people will be ha- be behaving like it's the night. Yeah. So like when the wolf is at the party and it's like dawn, it's like six in the morning. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like the same thing here. It's like, are they at breakfast, but they're all drinking, but like. He doesn't like time. Yeah. Let me, uh, this, this just occurred to me. I'm sure people have thought of this before, but this is right before the heist, right? When they're having breakfast? Uh-huh. I think so. Because they're, they're, they're all they're dressed in up. costume. Yeah. They're in uniform. Shouldn't they not be all seen together? In this, public, I had this in nitpicks. Okay, I, I don't, I, I don't mean to get ahead of it, but it just occurred to me as we're talking about this scene. It's completely, it's ludicrous. pre-surveillance state. Though. It's a terrible, it's a terrible idea. But there's like, there, there's a waitress who they tried to fuck on the tip who would remember five guys in black suits, but she would have to see like the local news about that robbery. It's like it wouldn't necessarily be mm-hmm. like she gets like a Twitter. She's looking at Twitter and she's like, those fucking guys. It would be like if she doesn't. I think watch Sean's the news, point is valid though because if they're so concerned about secrecy that they all have pseudonyms but yet they're like hey so we'll meet at that diner at 9 then we'll commit the robbery at 10.15 sure. good? Yeah. Also you would definitely Probably remember those idea. guys because they were smoking like chimneys and drinking Budweiser's at 9 in the morning. Yeah, they're all yeah, characters. Exactly. They jo- like and gangsters. Joe should never be seen with this group of people. Okay. Good, right. good opsec. Next <laughs> next rewatchables. Oh I had a nerd question for you. Okay. Had a movie been shot specifically like that with a group setting like that with the way they use the camera? Going around the way that it yeah, does. Yeah, all that. Mm, Who, I can't, was he stealing from I'm somebody? Sure I think was. that there's probably examples of that, but Terry Gilliam, when he saw this movie at Sundance, was like, I love how... I mean, it's, it's like a Scorsese-ish kind of thing to do, but mm-hmm. the fact that for the first few seconds of the movie especially, it's a lot of their backs, and so it'll go... And sides back. of heads. You can see through yeah. two people's exactly. heads. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like he's definitely going for something that he either was copying from somebody or felt like he had never totally seen. A lot of the movie is very over the shoulder, especially like the Madsen walk when he's going to get the gas tank. Mm-hmm. You know, you're following him in and out. And it's very handheld. It is very Scorsese. I don't. I, I can't think of anything that is exactly like that. Scene it feels that like a flex. Though. Yeah, for sure. I was watching, there's this movie called Goodfellas that came out in 1990. Never by heard of it. I, I would, I've certainly never rewatched Which, it. I might have yeah. seen a couple times. And um, When will that be a rewatchable coward? The scene when he goes <laughs> back entrance with Lorraine Bracco. Yeah. yeah. The Copacabana. Famous scene. Yeah. Copa Cabana famous scene? Yeah, famous yeah. scene. That now you're kind of numb to because we've all seen that movie a hundred yeah. times. But I was just thinking about like what a fucking flex that The greatest was. tracking shot in movie history. Yeah, he's yeah. just like, guess what? I'm whipping it out for the scene, Also, guys. one of my here's my favorite plan. music cues. Should we just do Goodfellas Rewatchables <laughs> in the middle of Reservoir Dogs? The reason we haven't done Goodfellas is it's 
has a chance to go for like four hours, and I think mm-hmm. we need a live audience. We definitely need the season to change so that we aren't in here for the entire time. Yeah, true. <laughs> that will be a winter podcast. Uh, I, I, I just, I think that the reason he shoots it that way is just to be naturalistic. It yeah. just you need to, okay. you need to be as close as possible to the characters to feel like you're inside the conversation. It's, you say about the foreshadowing too; it's just great, great characterization. You just immediately are like, this is like, there's a little beef between blonde and white. You know, like shoot me in a dream. You better wake up and apologize. Like, th- like that kind of stuff. Totally. And you just kind of see like. Like pink is jumpy and like a little bit edgy and Buscemi's a fucking wise ass. Orange is lying in the cut, kind of watching everybody. It's obviously nice guy Eddie thinks that, you know, you can tell who's running what and who's who. Big fan of pop music critic Eddie Bunker in the movie too, being like, <laughs> I like early stuff, you know? <laughs> yeah. True blue. It's a That's great a scene. fucking it. <laughs> it's one of my favorite opening scenes. Me too. It's way up there. That would be a fun ringer week. Best opening scene ever. Just opening scene week. Yeah. Bracket. It's like half of Tarantino's movies. We did just talk about that with Inglorious Bastards too. That whole opening where you meet Christoph Waltz's character in France is also way up there. He really cares about the first paragraph. I also think the leads and kickers, man. Those are the most important things. When I used to write, once upon a time, (laughs) I used to care about the lead in the end. Another most rewatchable, Keitel vs. Buscemi with the bleeding Tim Roth. We ain't taking him to the hospital. (laughs) Don't tell me your fucking name. It's escalating. It's just gets tense. It's a very long scene, but it's just well acted. And it, it feels like it's all being done at once, yeah, even though amazing. I'm sure it wasn't. You're acting like a first year thief. I'm acting like a fucking professional. <laughs> uh, Buscemi, it's it's in the conversation for the best Buscemi performance. Because it kind of, it is I the agree. ideal vision of the kind of he's actor scarier. we think of him as. He's, yeah. he's intense and weird and neurotic but also imposing yeah. in a weird way. Yeah. Um, but he doesn't know how to punch people, but he might shoot you in the face. You know, there's something, he's really, really great in this And movie. that was like, I think the first visual reference that I actually got, which was the, the two guys pointing the guns at each other. It was very like John Woo, Hong Kong action movie. So that was like, but even back then, I don't know if I'd seen Hard Boiled or whatever, any of those movies yet, but like that quickly became the first thing where I was like, ah, I see. Yeah. This is my favorite Buscemi. Second favorite is Sopranos. And third favorite is Domestic Disturbance with Vince Vaughn <laughs> and John Travolta. He's fucking awesome in that. He carries multiple scenes. Not Fargo. No. Fargo fourth. <laughs> not Miller's Crossing. Domestic Disturbance. So good. He's really good in a not great movie called Things to Do in Denver when you're dead. He's great in that. Love him. Yeah, in that that's movie. actually quite a rewatchable. Yeah. It's, it's a fun movie. It's kind of an unwatchable rewatch. It's like kind of bad and would not exist without Tarantino. That's boat drinks, right? Yes. Well, that yeah, was yeah. the era of the Tarantino ripoff era. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Where there's like three Amongst years friends. of- friends. Oh, yeah. my God. There's like very good- The Pete Berg Bachelor Party movie? What was that one? Oh, Very Bad Things. Yeah. 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 It's like three years of those. Another rewatchable scene, the, uh, the ear cutting scene, followed by the unexpected Tim Roth murder. Where he just guns him down, which I always forget. Every time I watch this movie, I forget that uh, that Mister Orange is eventually going to save the day. Where so does that just start for you immediately when White leaves? It ends when they leaves, and Madsen gets that gleam in his eye, and then goes full Madsen, the likes of which terrifying. I forgot that the guy is like, I have kids, and he's like, You through? Are you through? <laughs> I was like, Oh my god. <laughs> Cuts the ear off, and then he's kind of holding it up and looking at it. Was it good for you? Yeah. What? He just talks to it. It's just the best. Yeah. It's so good. I don't get grossed out by that scene, especially because they cut away at the perfect moment. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know whether it was like a prosthetics thing or if he was like, you know, it's like a choice where it's like the imagining what it looks like is worse than seeing it. But yeah, they they pan and they just show the watch your head 
graffiti above the doorway for about 10 seconds. He doesn't, Tarantino, for somebody who's so incredibly violent, definitely doesn't show things in movies. Like, we never really see Marvin's head get blown off in Pulp Fiction. It's quick, but it's not mm-hmm. like, you know. And then when we see him in the trunk, it's like the most obvious looking dummy, I think. We do see um, Hitler's entire body being destroyed <laughs> by automatic machine yeah, guns. Maybe he was saving it uh, for Jamie Hitler. Jamie yeah. kills like 40 people at the end of Django. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it Maybe depends. he's saving it for later. I think he knows when to show and not to show. I mean, the thing that is so... It's also hard to overstate. Like, he had he no money. show the suitcase. Yeah. No, but he he likes the whole concept of it's, I'm going to leave it to your sure. imagination. Yeah, totally. Yeah. He does. I think the thing that is just notable about that is the same thing with the characterization point you made about the first scene. What Mr. Blonde says right before he cuts the ear off, he says, listen, kid, I'm not going to bullshit you, all right? I don't give a good fuck what you know or don't know, but I'm going to torture you anyway regardless. Not to get information, it's amusing to me to torture a cop. You can say anything you want, because I've heard it all before. All you can do is pray for a quick death, which you ain't going to get. I don't think this movie gets a lot of fraternal order of police screenings. Mm. No, no. This is... You shoot any regular people? Real no, people. just cops. Yes. Uh, Fantasy's family is very split on this movie. You know, movie. I don't really know what my dad thinks of this movie. I'd like to know. I bet he finds it very entertaining, though. I don't think he's excited about the way they treat cops in the movie. The murder is a great twist. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Didn't see it coming the first time. Didn't know. Me neither. Next one is Tim Roth performing his background story. Really the second half of it, when he's starting to get it down. The commode story. And then he's actually performing it and the it's just really thing. well done the whole thing from the when he goes and meets his boss at the diner and all the different settings and the fact that this is this is one of my favorite scenes in all of movies blood in my veins everything i have is screaming take it off man just bail just get the fuck out of there panic hits me like a bucket of water first there's a shock of it bam right in the face and i'm just standing there drenched in panic and i sheriffs looking at me and they know man they can smell it i love this scene i've heard chris talk about this scene maybe more than any other movie scene i well first of all like i had never seen anything like it at the time that when you get up to it the mostly the color palette of the movie is either like sun-baked like valley looking outside la stuff or inside the warehouse you get there and they go to the graffiti in the background and it like the movie comes alive yeah and they've been so stressed out or cool for most of it Roth's energy when he does this monologue is completely different. It's like Mm -hmm. whole thing where he's like learning to be this guy that we've been watching for 30 minutes. And it just goes into all these different themes that Tarantino returns to over and over and over again. Like the story within a story, layers of character because you get to see Freddy instead of Mr. Orange. And the idea that he, Tarantino, was an actor first. He wanted to be an actor. And a lot of the like you're telling me I got to memorize all this shit? Like all of like the process stuff of like becoming this character really feels authentic in a way that almost maybe none of the other movie does in some ways where he's Mm. like, the way he's doing his speech in the apartment with the Silver Surfer poster, I mean, that's Tarantino, you know? And he goes up and he's like, this was about the time, this was about the, and he goes up to the script and he's like, he remembers the line and then he goes. And I just love how they jump between settings when they tell the story. It was it was uh, unlike anything I'd seen at the time. Pussy gets to act because yeah. half the movie he spends like this. Larry! Oh! <laughs> 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 I'm gonna die! I know it. <laughs> so he gets to flex his chops. Um, Some of the most anguished yelling in a movie ever, and at, for long stretches, Tim Roth just just screaming at the top of his lungs yeah. in a weird fake. American accent. I, I I don't want to besmirch Tim Roth too much. I think his accent's very bad in this movie. Yes. <laughs> and I, weirdly, his dialect coach was on set the entire movie, which is, I don't, I don't really know 
what they were doing. I think like sometimes I was like, is he supposed to be Dutch? Yeah. But I, I, I don't know <laughs> what the deal is with that. But yeah, like... It's a rare, bad accent, great performance. And you don't really, I don't think I, I think one thing that maybe some people get taken out of the movie because of, but when they're in the bathroom and the German shepherd is there and then Tim Roth is doing the monologue in the bathroom where the monologue is supposed to be taking place. And he's like talking to the cops, even though they're just being still, I was just like, I didn't know you could do that with writing. That is a flex. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Buscemi uh, arguing about the name selections. It's a shorter (laughs) scene, but It's, it's... I would say one of the iconic moments of the movie. <laughs> Who cares what your name is? Yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Mr. White. You have a cool-sounding name. All right, look, if it's no big deal to be Mr. Pink, you want to trade? Hey, nobody's trading with anybody. This ain't a goddamn fucking city council meeting, you know. <laughs> you get four guys all fighting over who's going to be Mr. Black. <laughs> no way I pick. No trades. <laughs> is, this, is this where you do your, your Joe Cabot bit? No, I'm doing that. We're later. gonna wait. Okay. And then uh Chris Penn doubting Mr. Orange's story. Yeah. And slowly going mad dog. This very good go friend of mine too. Yeah. Can I throw another one in there? Sure. Uh uh Vic Vega first coming back to from prison and talking about Skagnetti. He's a fucker. Seymour <laughs> 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 Skagnetti, this that stuff, and just him and Chris Penn and Tierney. Them wrestling in the office. And yeah. Almost doing a pile of driver. Yeah. You guys want to roll around on the floor doing Eddie's office. <laughs> so what do you have for most rewatchable? Commode story. Okay. Hmm. Is it does it make me an insane nihilist if I say that you're cutting scene? No. Because no. I what I like is everything that happens with Mr. Blonde and Mr. White in the lead up to nice guy Eddie arriving and then they leave. So I like that whole showdown that they have, which leads to us really learning because we've been told that Mr. Blonde is crazy and it's an incredible setup, but they never show him shooting everybody. So we really learn what a psychopath he is when he does this. So that whole sequence together, which is like 25 minutes of the movie is by far my favorite part of the movie. I was opening diner for about 20 years and now I'm the ending in the whole Chris Penn figuring it out. And just that whole seven minutes. It's fucking, it's amazing. I love that part too. And uh, I like three-way shootouts in general. <laughs> As, <laughs> it was a huge influence on your work. It was. With Tarantino, yeah. It did. It influenced some of the work I did later. Yeah. Let's take a break to talk about Luminary, a new podcast subscription service with some of the best content around, including some Ringer podcasts. It's the only place you can listen to our new narrative podcast, Break Stuff, the story of Woodstock, 1999. Definitely a podcast you do not want to miss. That was Kind of an incredible festival to look back on for mostly terrible reasons. Episode two is about how there was almost a mass electrocution is one of the things uh, we learned in that one. Along with Woodstock 99, Luminary gives you access to a bunch of other original shows from innovative, dynamic creators you can't find anywhere else, including uh, Hannibal Burris, Guy Raz. We have rewatchables 1999, our little spinoff series. I think we've done 10 of those. Um, and we have five more coming this fall. So there you go. The Luminary app, free to download. In addition to the Can't Miss Originals, use it to listen to thousands of podcasts, including this one. Get your first two months of access to Luminary's premium content for free when you sign up at luminary.link slash Simmons. After that, $7.99 per month. That's luminary.link slash Simmons for two months of free access. Luminary.link slash Simmons. Cancel anytime. Terms do apply. New category just for this podcast, Nerd Corner. Oh boy. Just Sean's just reactions for, the, just for, for this. Just for this podcast. <laughs> Re- 
Reservoir Dogs, according to Tarantino, influenced by Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. Mm-hmm. He said, "I didn't go out of my way to do a rip. I didn't go out of my way to do a rip off of The Killing, but I did think of it as my killing, my take on that kind of heist movie." Sean, you get thirty seconds to discuss The Killing. Uh, one of the all-time great Sterling Hayden performances. One of the very best final shots in movie history. Probably the one, a top three final shot in movie history. Go rent The Killing if you haven't seen it. It's definitely the movie that allowed Kubrick to take the leap from very crafty photographer trying to make his way doing B pictures to becoming the most significant film artist of his time. And you can see where Coop, where Quentin has taken stuff all throughout the movie. Solid. No preparation either, Chris. Uh, he also apparently, Joseph H. Lewis's film, The Big Combo, and yeah. Sergio Corbucci's 1966 Spaghetti Western Django inspired the scene when a police officer is torturing a chair. Any thoughts on those movies? I'll Big, give you 15 seconds. Big Combo's fun. I've only seen it once. I don't have any takes on it. Django is a better rewatch now because he made Django Unchained. Yeah. And there's a lot more from Django and Django Unchained and that whole vision of the modernized Western. So do you think he bought the rights to Django and then... He didn't buy the rights, but he has like a relationship with Franco Nero who played uh-huh. Django. Also, just as a tease for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, there's some very fun Django-esque flourishes in that movie too. So if you're interested in what he does, check that out. Can I can I just throw out a person that people should check out if they like Reservoir Dogs? Sure. Is the movies of Jean-Pierre Melville. So he's made a bunch of tough guy French movies, but my favorite is Le Circle of Rouge. Uh, there's Army of Shadows. Army of Shadows. Like yeah. So if, you've, if you love Reservoir Dogs and you want to watch movies like this, you can do a lot worse. Are we, are we going to talk about... I'm not done with that. Okay, 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 okay. This is the most excited I've ever been. The main character is being <laughs> named after the colors. Yeah. First scene in Taking of Pelham 123. Yeah. Any thoughts on that? I'll give you eight seconds. It's just a great homage, great Walter Matthau in Taking Pelham 123. Cool movie. The remake is really good too with Denzel. It's not bad, man. Yeah. Tony Scott. Touches from Ringo Lamb's 1987 film City on Fire. This 10 seconds. This might make you mad to watch this movie because City on Fire is Reservoir Dogs. Yes. Huge parts of this movie are is just Reservoir Dogs. So if you watch it, you might be like, is Quentin Tarantino actually good? Or did he just steal City on Fire? And that's like that's the one complicated thing about Tarantino. And he well, got he a, lot of, a about, lot of criticism. A lot of criticism. Yeah. He was saying he was doing homages and other people were saying, you just ripped, ripped off, off all these seven movies. Mm-hmm. That, where do you stand, Chris? I think he's a metatextual artist. I'm more a postmodernist. I don't think that. I agree. I don't what think he's particularly first... interested in like human beings. I think he's interested in weaving together pre-existing stories. City on Fire is a cool movie. Reservoir Dogs is a masterpiece. That's the other thing. Yeah. The three-way shootout. Where do you get that from? Japanese, um, John some Woo? Japanese movie, right? Uh, I don't. I'm not sure. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. That's it for Nerd Corner. A lot of John Woo movies have a lot of guys pointing guns at each other. For yeah. that's how the killer. There's a lot of the killer I brought three this. guns. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to put them on the table. Go with arena yeah. style. One bullet. Um, what's age the best? So I'm just talking about as the years pass. What's age the best? Okay. The opening credit sequence is really fun to watch after Swingers blatantly ripped it off while also acknowledging like, oh, they, they, everybody's trying to rip off Tarantino now. And then the next scene, they're leaving the diner and they're just ripping off Tarantino, which was the joke. Yeah. I always enjoy the connection of those two films. And Swingers was four years later. And it's like just a slow motion story. strut. Those that guys, yeah, they're yeah. leaving the diner and yeah. it's it's just, it's just makes me laugh. Guys like the characters are in Swingers 
are exactly the kind of people whose lives were never the same after Reservoir Dogs. Totally. It's like they oh, were the yeah. kind of guys who were putting on productions of, of Reservoir Dogs in like community theaters in yeah. Glendale after that. And that shot is still really influential. There's a, a sequence in the movie, The Farewell, which is this immigrant story oh, yeah. that just came out this year. That there is a slow motion group walking together scene in that movie, which you'd think it would have nothing to do with Reservoir Dogs, but it's meaningful. Should we film one of us walking in the Sunset Gower lot? <laughs> sure. The original five? You and Jalen did it once. We did. We did. Walking uh, away from an exploding car. Yeah, we did. That was weird. <laughs> Another thing that's aged the best. We talked about Young Buscemi. Mm-hmm. I really liked Young Madsen. Young Madsen was a top five lottery pick. And then 20 years later, you're like, whatever happened to Tom Gugliotta? Remember that? Those two years when yeah. he was like 22 and 10? No, Madsen what happened? has like, I, this might be sacrilegious, but he's got a little bit of Newman stuff like for a minute there. For like the, a minute in the early 90s when he had his shit together, it seems like maybe this guy is going to be like this iconic a guy. masculine character actor. Either he's alive or he's dead or the <laughs> cops got him or they don't. <laughs> so cool. So calm. He has a little bit of Dean Martin, too. You know, tall, yeah. black hair, very calm, chill delivery. Uh, I, I think he, he. I think he's had a complicated life. I think he has, too. I had uh, one of my friends from college, Kara McDermott, who married my roommate, Horks. Horks? Horks. Okay. John Horgan. Um, <laughs> Horks. Yeah. It's I didn't know if it was like a Swedish guy from Midsummer or something. She loved, <laughs> she loved Michael Madsen. Uh-huh. And to the point where it was like fan? bad <laughs> Michael Madsen movies. Oh, she opening weekend species. Yeah, but just too. love Michael Madsen. That was the, you know, we're just looking at him as like great action guy, but not, I never really saw the sex appeal side of him, but apparently he was there with the ladies for a while. I believe it. Yeah. I so I think it. he's like, a, I don't know what top five lottery pick we'd compare him to, but definitely like a Kenny Anderson. Did, I, did he get, who did he get market corrected by? Who came in and I took, think he, took he the, might have market corrected it himself. Yeah. Luke Wilson. <laughs> but like, it's telling that he's not in Pulp Fiction. Yeah. I, I mean, like, I think two he, years later, Tarantino's well, like, Well, actually, with Pulp Fiction, I wonder whether or not he was like, I'm doing like a really big, like, blockbuster. No, no, it was, it was, I mean, that may be true, but I, I think the plan long term was to do the Vega Brothers. Yeah. Was to get. The, the Travolta character from Pulp Fiction and, and Vic Vega together to make a movie and whatever happened. So Tarantino happened, did want to work with them again then. I, I think so. Kill Bill, yeah. He's in Boys Kill Bill. Bill. And he's in uh, The Hateful Eight. And I don't know why he wasn't in Pulp Fiction. I, it might on, be Michael to Madsen. let Travolta have the Vega brother on his own. He's not in Jackie Brown. That's he, the movie you think he might come back in. He's in The Getaway. He's in Wyatt Earp Species, which... I, I checked. Still not no no Oscars at all. Not even nominations. They didn't go back and give it to it's one of the one well, of the great we'll cable movies. Cecil of all time. Mill for the whole enti- whole entire production. Yeah, they got to do honorary for Henstridge. Yeah, she <laughs> came through. Um, Maybe that's what she gets. Like how how uh, what's her face? Um, the Irving Betty G. Davis. Yeah, the Irving yeah. G. Thalberg yeah. Award yeah. for 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 Natasha Henstridge. But then Madsen <laughs> goes down this road of man with a gun. Donnie Brasco, like he just kind of is in action movies, and mm-hmm. then that became. His and then sport. there's he he becomes the Skinamax Lord for a while. H- have oh, you guys yeah. heard his speaking voice recently? No, it's up with it. So he used to have six. you know this this olive oil voice, mm-hmm. as as Jack Waltz would say, and now he's it sounds like he's been gargling with concrete. He's got the raspiest, wow. 
darkest, most difficult to understand voice. In The Hateful Eight, it's really hard to understand what yeah. he's saying. And I don't, I don't know what happened to him there. Maybe he had some some sort of vocal cord issue, but that's probably part of it. Any other age the best for you? Because I, I kind of cribbed from this category for another later category stuff I normally would put in what stage. I would just say that not not just the soundtrack, but the juxtaposition yeah. of the music with what it's scoring, yep. which was not something that I was particularly familiar with at the time, but has essentially been copied so many times that it, we've now like lost our ability to detect it. But when you basically are showing you know, some, whether it's a vi- act of violence or something, and then the music is offsetting that violence or, you know, amplifying it by its irony, you know? I have the a, idea of this guy listening to easy listening soft rock while he cuts somebody's ear right. off was fucking mind blowing. I also have, I like Who's the Mole and Who's the Leak are two of my favorite movie things. I was mm-hmm. just watching, um, what's the Russell Crowe thing called? The Lattice Voice. Yeah. And somebody leaks Bill O'Reilly's contract demand and, the second or third episode, and then they have Ailes has to find out who the leak is. I always enjoy that. Yeah, it's a good device. It's a really good device. That's the Tarantino he knows all the devices. Um, the other thing is uh, not just that part of the soundtrack, but the Stephen Wright as the radio host. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. Putting yeah. that on the soundtrack and using that as the way to kind of you know set the scene for what this is. Also, thought it was a pretty good LA movie. Yeah, you know, kind of yeah. looking around, and I I guess I learned that that warehouse is in Eagle Rock. Which I didn't know. Which he is was living, and he was living in Glendale. But I mean, I don't know. You would know better. I don't know when well, traffic first, became even harder here. But there's a feeling of like when you read him talking about LA at that time, like you could get across LA a little bit easier. So he would like go to Malibu and then drive down Sunset yeah. back to his mom's house. And I don't know. It just it's like seems like a kind of different city back then. His first three movies are basically LA movies mm-hmm. told in different parts of LA. Yes, and. I think one of the fun things in True Romance is they end up at that hotel that seems so fun in the movie, but it's like right down the street on Sunset. Mm-hmm. And it's not as fun as yeah, the Safari, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah. they're all good. They're, they all have a lot of scenes of people in cars driving around. What stage the best? I'm going to go with uh, the opening credit sequence for me. Okay. Okay. What stage the worst? The N word stuff didn't. It was even a little bit controversial in the uh, '90s, and I think has gotten worse and seems. This movie and Pulp Fiction, he really goes for it. And Jackie Brown, too. Yeah, in ways that... Jackie Brown's where he got like especially called out for it, I think, right? By Spike. Yeah. Yeah. And then Sam Jackson came to his defense. Um, it's weird that there's not... That none of these six guys is a black guy or a Latino or anything. That it's six white guys. I think that would probably play out differently now. I don't know. It's not too woke, but... Uh, honestly, I, I think it's a movie about bad people. And it's purposefully about bad people. Yeah. And these guys are racist. And that's it. Like, it, it's not... Okay. I think it would be hard to make a movie. I think it'd be hard for a white director to make a movie with all this in it. Yeah, it probably I mean, wouldn't like, happen. But whether it's like Age of the Best or the Worst, where there are guys in the early 90s who are criminals, who are racist, definitely. There's no yeah. character in here who is standing outside of this. Even the cop is implicated. He, the, You remember, like, the moment when Tim Roth kills the woman in the car... He's right. like, and he, well, that's before he sees Harvey Keitel gun down all those cops. And then he kills the woman in the car who shoots him in the stomach. And he's like, I've crossed over. Like, this is yeah. not how this yeah. was supposed to go. They were supposed to come in and stop us. He said at the time of the release, Tarantino, I wanted to go the opposite way of how Hollywood normally works. I wanted you to hear them say very ugly things. I also wanted you to hear them say profound things. I wanted them to come across like fucking idiots one moment and brilliant geniuses the next. These are a bunch of guys who probably did time in San Quentin in the 80s and 90s. Like yep. they, right. they they are fucking idiots. I, I I understand why it doesn't it's 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 not palatable now, but I don't think it's un 
unremarked upon or it's not not okay. self-conscious at all Buscemi's theory on black women along those lines is, yeah, well, is that, a tough two minutes I think that's what I was going to say too I think one of the complicated parts of this conversation is that if you read interviews with Quentin or if you look at his movies or the actors that he casts like he has this obvious adoration affection almost obsession with black culture and the way that some of the characters like talk about black women too, where they they love black women. They're well, attracted the start to black Jackie women. Brown is just a two and a half minute tracking shot of Pam Greer. Yeah, it's walking. Just, it's just a, they it's, talk about Pam Greer in this movie. They yeah. talk about yeah, and Honey West and all these actresses that they are. And E. Lois, the E. Lois story, the, the, you know, Chris Penn's character is like that's the hottest woman any guy's ever seen. Right. So it, it's all kind of complicated by that stuff. I do think that in general, though, it's it's what you're saying, which is that these guys are they're they're idiot crooks. Yeah. Another what's aged the worst is uh, Lawrence Tierney as Joe. He's yes, bad. he apparently was not a pleasant person to work with on this. He's set, bad, yeah. and it's hard to believe that they Harvey Keitel couldn't have called in a favor with any good old actor that he knew at this point. Yeah, this guy's bad. I, I disagree. I know Fennessy likes him. I think he's bad. The, Never uh, mind what you would ordinarily do. <laughs> he's basically Mike Francesa. How do you not like this? He's like if Mike Francesa couldn't act. The one thing that is like funny Mike is... Mike Francesa would have been better. He does forget a line during the naming the guys sequence, and you can see him kind of muffle the line. And right, it's right before he says, it's my way or the highway. But he, you can watch him in a take that's in the movie yeah. miss the line. Right. And that never happens. Like you... That's why we have 10 takes or 50 takes for a movie. So it's obvious that it was hard to shoot with him. I just think that his presence and that, you know, fat Skeletor body he and looks head. like the thing. Yeah. yeah. He, he's just, he brings so a presence. So Buscemi said in a podcast interview that everyone had a difficult time with him because he was easily distracted and kept forgetting his lines. And that Tarantino and everyone else was so upset with him that he was fired after the third day of filming. So he might have actually been in more of the movie and they just dumped him. Yeah, they they purposely keep him out of basically this the whole third act until the very last scene. All right, one more one more new category just for this. You guys didn't know about this category either. The Ewing Theory Award for Best Theory. So here are the four nominees. Tarantino's theory about Madonna's like a virgin. Uh-huh. That it was actually about this John Holmes motherfucker who took her to a place <laughs> she didn't think was possible. Um Madsen's theory that Ladera Heights is the Black Palos Verde. <laughs> I thought it was just like this inside LA joke that I thought fucking slayed me. Uh, Kaitel's torturing theory on which finger to cut off first. Oh, yeah. yeah. Go with the pinky and then threaten get the some, thumb. Get some John Wayne motherfucker. <laughs> he's tough. Smash him across the nose. He says, managers know better than to fuck around. So if you get one that's giving you static, he probably thinks he's a real cowboy. So you got to break that son of a bitch in two. <laughs> if you want to know something he won't tell you, cut off one of his fingers, the little one. Then tell him his thumb's next. After that, I'll tell you if he wears ladies underwear. I'm hungry. Let's get a taco. <laughs> this movie's unbelievable. Amazing. I must have said, let's get a taco like a hundred times in my life. And then uh, Buscemi's theory on not tipping. So what was the best of the four I'm going to go not tipping because Madonna herself has uh, negated the like a virgin theory. So while it's an incredible theory, it is is actually wrong. So, so Madonna said. Although I tip. She liked the film. <laughs> Just FYI. Good, good, good note. <laughs> she liked the film. She refuted the interpretation, gave him a copy of her erotic album signed to Quentin. It's not about dick. It's about love. Madonna. <laughs> I mean, honestly, she, she, there's, there's artist intent and there's interpretation. Just because Madonna wants it to be about something doesn't mean that's what it actually yeah, nobody, is. Nobody cares what Tony Scott thinks Top Gun is about. Exactly. <laughs> um, 
My favorite theory is the Madonna theory, but I think all of the, the all I the love the Kaitel cut the finger off because when he was yeah. when I was watching it yesterday, I was thinking about a man who worked at a jewelry store who only has these three fingers as in his life. That seems like a tough break. Yeah, how yeah. do you live your life? How do you live your hand life with just those three fingers? Mm. Casting what ifs? Tarantino wanted James Woods, <laughs> made him five different cash offers. Woods' agent refused the offers without ever mentioning it to Woods because they were lower than his and salary. And Woods fired his agent, right? Tarantino and Woods later met. Tarantino's told in the story, Woods fired the agent. Wow. Tarantino avoided telling Woods which role he was offered because the actor who played the role was magnificent anyway, which there's a lot of online speculation who it was. People think it was Mr. Orange. Really? Interesting. Yeah. A little old for I that. I think it would be hard like. to believe James Woods even in 1992 could play like a young undercover cop. I like him as Mr. White, though. Yeah. Tarantino originally wrote Mr. Pink for himself. Mm-hmm. Michael Madsen originally auditioned for Mr. Pink. Vincent Gallo turned down the role of Mr. Pink. I don't know if I believe that. This is why it's half-assed internet research. Mm-hmm. Uh, Tim Roth almost played Mr. Pink. Tom Sizemore was a finalist. For Mr. Pink, that could have broken our brains, Chris Ryan. Yeah, that would. I mean, Tom Sizemore Mr. Pink. has a very outsized role in the Tarantino universe for the next few years, and then the character he plays in Natural Born Killers is the brother of Seymour Scagnetti, Jack Scagnetti. Yeah, <laughs> that's Apparently, a fucked up character. Yes, that's one of the most fucked up characters in movie history. Is Sizemore's character in Natural Born Killers? Apparently, Tarantino asked him which part. And why he wanted it. And he said, for me, the action is the juice. <laughs> for me, the action uh, is the juice. <laughs> Buscemi originally auditioned for Mr. White. George Clooney read for the role of Mr. Blonde. I could see it. down. I could see it. And he later does a Tarantino movie and he does From Dust Till Dawn. Yeah. Christopher Walken refused the role of Mr. Blonde. Hmm. That's almost too obvious yeah, for Walken. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of like, Walken's did like, they just like send him the script <laughs> and then he didn't get back to them? So he's turned- I can't do your role. <laughs> Mr. Walken? Yeah. <laughs> Give it a run. Robert Forster auditioned for Joe Cabot. Yeah. Um, eventually played the Jackie Brown guy. He would, I'd never thought Robert Forster was that great, but he would have been better than uh, Lawrence Tierney. What? I didn't really like him in Jackie Brown. That's yeah. fucking what? crazy. Well, we'll talk about that on rewatchables. What is else. happening? I just didn't like him that much. That's a bad take. I'm sorry. It's my take. Okay. Can ta- you, have, so you shit I on. I can take. You what? shit on Lawrence Tierney, but then you were like, also Robert Forster would be bad. He's fine. He's Wasn't Robert Forster nominated for an Oscar for Jackie yes. Brown? He's, he's fine. Okay. <laughs> it's a really important part. I just never thought him and Pam Gray would ever have any sort of attraction. It made no sense to me. He was an old man. <laughs> um. Tony Scott read both scripts of True Romance Reservoir Dogs. I wanted to talk to you about this. He wanted to direct Reservoir Dogs. Tarantino said, you can have True Romance. That's how that went. Can we talk about what Tony Scott's Reservoir Dogs would have been? I mean, it would have probably definitely had the, you would have had the heist. The heist would have existed. Yep. Probably would have had more cop stuff. Mm -hmm. Would have been, would it have been like a Hans Zimmer score instead of the 70s songs? It would have been electrified. Yeah. Like it would have been complete. Gary Oldman would have been Mr. Blonde, but with like a dreadlocks and gold teeth. That's right. (laughs) Gary Oldman pretty much plays like Mr. Orange's cousin in the professional. (laughs) This movie also has a, has a, it's, it comes out before True Romance, but it has an echo with the, from a diddle-eyed Joe to a damned if I know, which is something that Drexel Spivey uh, says. White, Mr. White says he used to work with Alabama. That's right. The theatrical release contains no female speaking parts. 
wanted to mention that in the casting. What if there's, good, good we do not hear a woman speak in this movie mm-hmm. other than the one who pulls her gun out and yeah. shoots him. Nor on this podcast. Dion Waiters Award. Madsen? Is there anybody else? Uh, I mean, it's pretty equally distributed. I would say that the uh, Tim Roth's boss, the guy with the no shirt vest. Yeah. Yeah. He he does a lot with a little. He get he really chews it up. That invisible on... bitch. <laughs> Some scum ridden motherfucker. <laughs> I think Madsen in the ear cutting scene is like Vinny Johnson in Game Five of the nineteen ninety finals. Yeah. He's just like, just feed me. I don't care how many hall. You gonna bark all day, little doggy? You gonna bite? It's just he just goes for Let's it. Let's go, Madsen. He goes for it in a really really significant career altering way. And unfortunately, his career was not altered. <laughs> there's also there's one guy uh it's not, it's barely even like worth mentioning but i remember when uh steve buscemi's running away from the bank ro- from the robbery and he like bangs into a guy and i always remember like the guy he bangs into is like fuck you asshole <laughs> and just like that just seems like an extra or like one of tarantino's acting buddies who was like i gotta make the most of this one opportunity <laughs> and he's like fucker <laughs> <laughs> let's uh take a break. let's take a break we're gonna take a break to talk about raised in captivity that is the new book by chuck klosterman somebody who has been in uh a couple of rewatchables podcasts actually he is a big part of the extended ringer universe as well as the old grant lane universe back in the day this is a book it's billed as fictional non-fiction it's a collection of stories that go in every single direction you can imagine. The AP said it's like a read-only version of The Twilight Zone. Um, You have stories ranging from why coin flips are no longer 50-50 and a government research team investigating that. Uh, There's another story about a band who finds that their song has suddenly and inexplicably been adopted by white nationalists as a racist anthem. All things that are in the news and relevant, but are also, he pulls the fiction out of them. The AP says it's Chuck Klosterman at his best. It is called Raised in Captivity. Uh, He's doing a little book tour right now, actually. You should see if he's coming to a city near you, but uh, you can buy this book wherever you buy books. All right, back to the rewatchables. Sean, I have one more Dion Waiters. All right, what is it? The cop who's telling the story while Tim Roth is telling the commode story. The guy who keeps referring to the motorist that he has pulled over and he is instructing him to put his hands on the dash. And he keeps saying, buddy, if you don't put your hands on the dash, I'm going to blow your brains out. <laughs> and he's so earnest. Great mustache on that Great guy. Great mustache. He looks like he's from Wisconsin. He doesn't seem like he's from Simmons-esque California. Simmons-esque mustache. We could give him wow. the best that guy award. Okay. The Joey Pants award. Okay. Sure. I, was, I, I have had, no I had idea the, what his name is. I had Baltz targeted for that because yeah. I've never yeah. seen Baltz since. Yeah. Baltz is just like Baltz. Yeah. He's Baltz was the cop yeah. for people listening. Marvin. Marvin right. Nash. Marvin. <laughs> this fucking guy cut my ear the sick fuck <laughs> I'm fucking deformed I'm fucking deformed I'm fucking shot the stomach over here fuck you <laughs> fuck you I'm dying over here uh, half ass internet research a lot of people walked out there in the screenings of this film including a screening that Wes Craven and makeup legend Rick Baker walked out of. Yeah. Oh, no. Wes Craven, Tarantino said, Wes Craven walked out of my movie. The guy who did Last House on the Left <laughs> walked out of my movie. Tarantino said it happens every single screening. For some people, it's the violence or the rudeness of the language. It's a mountain they can't climb. It's okay. It's not their cup of tea. I want it to be disturbing. Um, 
A video game was released of this movie in 2006? I didn't remember that. For PC, Xbox, and PlayStation 2. The game does not feature the likeness of any of the actors, <laughs> except for one. Can you guess Madsen. which actor signed off on his likeness? Madsen. Oh, Madsen was he like, needed the paycheck. CT say, see, yeah. yeah. GameSpot called it, quote, an out-and-out out failure. <laughs> the video game. <laughs> the film's budget was so low, many of the actors simply used their own clothing as wardrobe, and uh, Chris Penn used his own car. I can tell that that's Tim Roth's outfit in the commode story. Tarantino said in 14 that the entire soundtrack budget was spent on on securing Stuck in the Middle with you. Hmm. How many fucks do you think are in this movie? Like 400. I'll say 117. Lower or higher? 117. 272. I get it. The budget wouldn't cover police assistant for traffic control. So in the scene where Buscemi forces a woman out of her car and drives off in it, he can only do so when the traffic lights were green. Oh my God. This is a true That's indie. dangerous. Um, allegedly, Madsen had difficulty filming the torture scenes during, due to his strong aversion to violence of any kind. He's been in like 40 action movies. How is this possible? Yeah, this feels that. half-assed. At several points of the filming, Tim Roth had, had been lying in the pool of fake blood for so long that the blood would dry out and he would have to be peeled off the floor, which took several minutes. Because they shot it in the summer in, yeah. in Eagle Rock, like you said. Yeah, that's right. That's how we're going to be at the end of this podcast. <laughs> we're even peeling us off. You mentioned Mr. Blonde's real name was Vic Vega. I never knew this somehow until uh, until I was researching this movie that Vic Vega and Vincent Vega from Pulp Fictions were brothers. And then Tarantino said he always wanted to do a prequel called Double V Vega. But Madsen and Travolta eventually got too old. I'm really disappointed in this. Yeah. I feel like there was a window in the late 90s where the Double Tarantino V Vega would have been- is its own never got to see rewatchables, you know? Like, That's a good podcast. Yeah. The unmade Tarantino movies. He's got, he's got a million of them. Um, the title came to Tarantino. Everybody knows the story. When he was working in video archives, he would recommend titles to customers. He suggested Au Revoir Les Infants. Yes, Louis Mal. Au Revoir Les Infants. Yeah. The patron mockingly, mockingly replied, I don't want to see no Reservoir Dogs. So one just quick note here. This was also back at a time where you could be like really weird and oblique. And it wasn't like optimized. Like it was, just, he, these people were like, what is Reservoir Dogs? He's like, that's just who these guys are. Yep. It's funny because we, when we did the Inglorious Bastards episode, he said something similar about why he spelled Inglorious Bastards the way that he did. And he was just sort of like, it's one of my things. It's my flourish. Mm-hmm. I'm allowed to do it because I'm an artist. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't do that for most of his other movies. You know, Kill Bill, that's just a good title. And Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that's just a good title. And you get what it is when you hear it. Reservoir Dogs, that's pretty weird. Yeah. It doesn't mean anything. It's confusing. There's no reservoir. There are no There's dogs. definitely not a reservoir where they live. <laughs> Apex Mountain. I don't really have anybody except for you could make a Chris Penn case. Mm-hmm. You could 100% make a Madsen case. In fact, I think I will. I think this was his Apex Mountain. You don't have to make a case because I'm not arguing with you. Tim Roth. N- no, I think Pulp. Hmm. I think Pulp for him. I was going to say Pulp too because I don't think he's that great in this movie. Eh. We'll right, do the, let's do the accent thing. Chris Penn, it's somewhere between here and Shortcuts. I don't know. Was he in At Close Range? Well, I feel like people he will was. say Footloose for Chris Penn. He's the friend. He's the buddy. Oh, yeah. Footloose. I that's feel like that's what people would point to. Yeah, you're right. But I, I love him in this movie. Right. The Saul Rubinick, they knew overacting award. 
I can't give it to Lawrence Tierney because he's such a bad actor. He's not he wasn't acting. overacting. Yeah. It's got to go Chris Penn. It has to go Chris Penn. Don't make me do this. Never stop pointing that fucking gun in my dad! Everything he does from Sean when earmuffs. he shoots the cop, this cop right here, this guy. Earmuffs, Sean. He's kind of bad for about 90 seconds Who? in that scene. Just absolutely not. Who are you talking about? This guy! <laughs> like he just dials it up. There's spit flying out of his mouth. And he's doing that like his eyeballs are bulging. Like, I'm really trying to act like he's taking a shit. He's just trying too hard. I would have liked to have seen that scene in the hands of Sean Penn. Um, no, that's not that's not correct. <laughs> or James Woods. Or James Woods. Uh, uh, no. He is overacting in that scene. Larry, stop pointing that fucking gun at my dad. <laughs> it's great stuff. He's he's Chris Penn is really Do you, great. Can I actually can I throw another Rubinek in there? Yeah. Is is the last 30 seconds of Kaitel. <laughs> That's weird. Think- he like kind of climbs I, I, on I, he climbs on Roth like it's almost romantic. Yeah. It's weird. They have they've formed a bond. Yeah. There's a father-son kind of bond between the two of them. They that bet on the brewers weird. for Christ's right. sakes. That's right. <laughs> um I created one more new category oh that I didn't tell you about. You really put you put a lot of work into this. I, did. I, I appreciate that. Thanks. This is a category that actually Sean, might stick he works around. With Tarantino, That's so right. it's like he's going to oh, pay I homage. Like, I don't know if Quentin's <laughs> listening. We haven't talked in a while since we worked together. The Iron Meg Sharp Award for best recasting. Oh wow! You get to recast any key role in this movie with an actor you like. Oh my god! Today or back then? Yeah, it's got to make sense for 1992. God damn it, Bill. Yeah, this is good. I sprung it on you. What, what can we do with Caruso in this movie? <laughs> oh, wow. Oh, wow. Could Caruso have been uh, the Tim Roth character? I think Caruso would be Could he have been good... Mr. Orange? Because they would have been Mr. Orange because of his hair. That hair. Yeah. I like where you're going with yeah. this. Caruso. I could have seen him on the... <laughs> also, uh, I think Gandolfini... As either as nice guy, whoa! Instead of Chris Penn, mm-hmm. whoa! Strong, it's a great category, right? Yeah. And Gandolfini has the physical bearing yeah. of Joe Cabot. Wow, that's a great pick. Thanks. I'll probably go Schwarzenegger's Mr. Pink. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you would take this more seriously. I'm trying to think of who's a great character actor from the '90s that I want to talk about. Dennis Farina as Joe. Yeah, that's fucking. That would awesome, be really Bill. good. That's fucking great. He's, he's a little older. It's realistic that one of his sons would have been there. You want to roll around on the carpet, you go do it in Eddie's office. The name, like, <laughs> Buscemi getting mad at uh, at his, at being Mr. Pink. Yeah. Like, Farina's reaction to that would have been great. It just lifts it to a whole other level. Would you do, like, William Peterson as Mr. Blonde? Somebody like that? Oh, yeah. Oh. That's really good, Sean. Bill Pete? Bill Pete. Your boy, Bill Pete. My guy? Yeah. All right. That was fun. We'll work on What that about Daniel next. Day-Lewis as Mr. Orange? Get a different Brit pack in. Or Oldman. What about Daniel Day-Lewis's Joe Cabot? <laughs> he gains 70 pounds, shaves his head. I am Joe Cabot, cloaked in a men's power! <laughs> you will show me my votes. <laughs> it's so hot in here. We're just doing Lincoln. Yeah. We're all going to die. Three wish your dad's going to end this. Picking nits. They wouldn't really eat breakfast for a bank heist. We covered that. Yep. The female driver is going to pull out a gun and shoot the two scary guys that are carjacking her. The, she's going to point the other guys. Was it like carjacking like a huge thing though? And I think guns and cars, it was a different time. 
early okay. 90s, it was more likely that someone would do that, especially in LA. Okay. Crime ridden Eagle Rock, a little bit I more. I see one guy, but not two. It makes less sense. Okay. Because you're just going to get the one guy, but not the other guy coming in. To the the pastor and then uh, I've, this has bothered me for how many years now? 27? Mm-hmm. How did Kaitel get two shots off at the end? I'm sure so you've this done is, the slow motion frame by frame. So this thing. is so my, it looks like he got the first shot off. What happens? Then everybody's shooting oh, at okay. each other. I thought you were talking about the very, very last shot. The very end. He that's gets my two, unanswerable question. No, we, yeah, we have that yeah. later. I'm saying the three-way shootout. You want me to explain he, he kills both of them. So he gets the first and last shot, basically, and takes the two middle ones is how that goes. Okay. The only way to explain it is that there is a vanishing one quarter of one second between the time when... Joe shoots Mr. Orange, Mr. White shoots Joe, and then in that small frame of time, which is minuscule, Mr. White has the opportunity to turn ever so slightly his gun and shoot Nice Guy Eddie while Nice Guy Eddie is shooting Mr. White. So he does, he literally just turns in real time. No, I know that, but he's, he had already been shot at that point. But being shot doesn't mean you immediately fall to the ground and die. That's not how it works in real life. If you get shot, you can still be on your feet. Also, it just works for the story. They just all have to die. It's incredible. Double shot. Yeah. It kills two guys in a split second while Mr. White, shot at. The curved bullet. It's great. The grassy Noel Simmons is coming out. Let's see the logistics. <laughs> Best quote? Oh, boy. Are you going to bark so all... many that are just like yeah. so I didn't even small. do I got to say, I left the category empty because I feel like this whole movie is the best quote. I, I mean, like, I like things like, asshole, you better start talking because yeah. we got shit we need to talk about. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I think you're kind of borderline doing Pacino yeah. and Heat. I also love when he's just like, you're going to be okay. <laughs> you're going to be okay. Okay. <laughs> okay. You're going to be okay. Say the goddamn fucking words. Oh, are you a doctor? <laughs> I said, oh, you a doctor. <laughs> I, my personal favorite is I'm hungry. Let's get a taco. I'm hungry. Let's get a taco. Yeah. After this whole speech about which finger to cut off. Um, yeah, I got a problem. I got a big fucking problem. <laughs> I think are you going to bark all day, little doggy, or are you going to bite is the one that stuck with me the most. I'm sorry, I didn't catch it. Would you repeat it? Are you going to bark all day, little doggy? Or are you going to bite? Oh, Christ. Hey, look, you two assholes. Because mm. that was in the trailer, too. And because I could only watch the movie when I rented it, and I watched the trailer a million times, all those little lines stick out in my head. I think you're acting like a first-year thief. I'm acting like a fucking professional. Um, that's a big one. I, I really like nice guy going, all right, Mr. Fucking Compassion, I will call somebody. <laughs> <laughs> I think I won't forget. Uh, <laughs> a fucking snake charmer. <laughs> that's a good one. I'm fucking deformed sticks with me. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this sick fuck. <laughs> <laughs> Could this be remade as a 10-episode Netflix show? I'm going to make the case for it quickly. 27 years later, this movie's kind of dated. You could tell the backstory of each guy. Mm -hmm. That's not the point. No, I'm just going to make the case for it. So you got like seven guys we care about in this movie? You go back, you do like almost Lost style where it's like the next guy and now you tell his backstory. So now the Tim Roth practicing to be... A cop is now just a whole episode. I'm not saying this is a good I idea. Would, I'm if saying you were going to do it straight, do it. you would basically make the show about Roth, and the first three episodes are him like building up to this, and then for like the second half of the season is him getting into the gang, him doing all this stuff. I think. 
Okay. I don't want any new Reservoir Dogs content. I don't either. I just wanted to play it out. <laughs> Probably an answerable question. Can I go? Can I ask you one here, Bill? Unanswerable? Yeah. What the fuck is happening in Gardenia? Because that's where they all meet with Nice Guy and Joe. It's quiet. It's also a huge, huge location for Den of Thieves. Mm. <laughs> I've never personally spent much time in Gardenia. Want to go road trip? But is it like just a complete like? Is it like Moss Eisley's spaceport out there? Like all just armed robbers live in Gardenia? Do you want to go down there and wearing black suits and white shirts and <laughs> black ties and just look suspicious? No, I think we should diners? go as uh, Paolo Shriver and, <laughs> and uh, Fifty Cent from from Den of Thieves. Is this a better movie if we see the heist? No, that's no. my first unanswerable question. No, we've learned this from No Country for Old Men. No, I love less. that revelation of Mr. White confronting Mr. Blonde about what he did. Bam, bam, bam. That whole making you figure out what actually happened there, slowly unfurling it, is way more effective. Can I make the case for seeing the heist? You're just the devil's advocate now. It's Tarantino, and I think all of those actors robbing a bank, I just would have wanted to watch it. I think they would have maybe shot it if he had the money. I just think that yeah. to get that much stuff going on is really hard outside. I don't know. They There's give a us reason so this much. movie takes place in a warehouse. But they give us so much because you have Mr. White essentially explaining, yeah. you have Mr. Orange explaining bang, the entire heist bang, to Mr. White. Bang, yeah. But Here's then the when thing. they're in the car together too, and they're talking about the plan, and he says, these two go over here, you go over here, you're on crowd control, you're in the back getting the diamonds, like... We, we can picture it in our mind. We don't need to see it. Okay. But <laughs> I love bank heist scenes. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Probably the most of anyone in this room. Even more than you, Chris Ryan. Uh, I just like, ba- yeah. I like watching banks get rubbed. I would have been in on it. I would have liked to have known which of the guys would have been the guy who took it a little too far. Probably Madsen. He definitely did. Since you're a big theory person, and a big hypothetical person. Have you ever mapped out how you would rob a bank? No. You haven't? I've just thought so about So never it. constructed the perfect crime? No. We did. Wilds and I talked about this seven years ago about an amusement park called Felony Land. <laughs> where <laughs> I don't think that's aging well. <laughs> where you went. It was an amusement park where you could go and you could almost like how, uh, what do the people do when they go? The paint gun places? Oh, uh, yeah, paintball. Paintball. Yeah. But you just predicted the show Westworld. Yeah. So you just get to go and commit felonies, but they're safe? I didn't predict the show Westworld. The show Westworld ripped off Felony Land. No. <laughs> just look at the fucking dates. Okay. Well, in fairness, Westworld was a movie in the 70s. It was a book by Michael Creighton. Now listen, I just know what the facts are. <laughs> you go and it's like, hey, what are you doing for your bachelor party? Oh, we're going down to Felony Land where 10 of us are going to go fake There's rob no a bank. There's no real way to pitch Felony Land as a bachelor party that goes over well. You can say <laughs> Vegas, like, well, we want to go see Cirque du Soleil and we're going to go ATV driving. And it's yeah. like, actually, you're going to lose $11,000. I wish Wilds was here. Wilds love Felony Land. Yeah. Um, so did, you would rob banks in Felony Land, but like you would you have the one friend the who banks. would kill a prostitute and that wouldn't be good. You don't want that. <laughs> Afterwards. You don't want that. Did Mr. Pink die? Mr. Pink was Buscemi's character. Yes, for I think so. That was my unanswerable question: Is like, does anybody live? I think Mr. Pink gets away. And so, if you're going to do a movie, I like the idea of Mr. Pink present day. Yeah, Buscemi, sixty years old, working in a bar somewhere. Something happened. Planning a new. What heist. happened afterwards? Yeah. So, Tarantino said he lived. He said he survives. But I'm, orange I'm, and, and white kill you, each other, or, yeah, or yeah. they die. Okay. Apparently, if you jack up the volume, you hear gunshots and. Mr. Pink can very faintly be heard yelling, don't shoot, I've been shot, god damn it. So he lives. 
Mr. Pink definitely lives. Something tells me that in 1992, the LAPD would not be like, "Hey, cool, Mr. Hey, Pink. Oh, he, hey, he's surrendering. Hold on, he just shot carefully, eleven cops. Let's today. carefully put handcuffs on him. Yeah, complicated time for the LAPD. Any other unanswerable questions? Um, I, I, I think also, what is Tony Scott's Reservoir Dogs? Kind of falls yeah. into that too, which yeah. I think would be interesting. All right, who won the movie? Yeah, no brainer. Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Did anybody ever launch their career so aggressively? The the peop, the person, the number one person that he was compared to after this came out was Orson Welles. Yep. They were like, nobody had ever been shot out of a cannon with a de- directorial debut and made themselves a star. And unlike Orson Welles, topped it. Right. Which is the the, the wildest right. thing of all of it. Is Orson Welles' even... next movie is yeah. Magnificent Ambersons. His next movie is fucking Pulp Fiction. Yeah. I agree. Tarantino won the movie. I actually was surprised how easily I came to that conclusion. Who would have been your runner-up choice, though? I, I mean, I would do Roth because I love his performance so much. I know that it actually Oh, shit. We never talked about Roth. I meant to put that in nitpicks. Okay. Because we talked about it for a split second. I just think the accent's bad. It's a pet peeve of mine. It really— it's, It goes up and it down. It really hurts. I like everything about it except for it's the It's better accent. in the commode scene than it is I just don't know where he's from, and, and it's it changes. And then, it, as you said, at one point he's Dutch— there's times when it sounds like he's from Rhode Island, which well, his makes name's no sense. Dyke, so I'm like, maybe he's from like Minnesota or something like mm-hmm. that, or like he has like a little bit. But obviously, it's a British guy trying to do an LA accent. Yeah, and it's one of those things that if I didn't know it was a British guy trying to do an LA accent, I would have guessed it was a British guy trying to do an right. LA accent. It just doesn't add up. It just the vocal intonations on some things, like "I'm gonna die." Like, what is <laughs> right. Why is he talking that way, Luigi? Yeah, <laughs> I like your Caruso call. Thanks, man. Thanks. That I won the pod. <laughs> we should add one more category. Who won the pod? He's like, stuff for legends. <laughs> <laughs> that whole thing is just telling. Uh, Chris, Sean, thank you. Thanks to Voodoo, a leading streaming app with a library of over 150,000 titles available to rent or buy. Over 10,000 titles you can watch for free on their ad supported on demand service. Enjoy everything from the latest Hollywood blockbusters to your favorite indie films without subscriptions or contracts. You can even watch. Fatal Attraction, attraction, which we might do in uh, April. Go to voodoo.com slash rewatchables to sign up. Start watching today. We have some good stuff coming up to rewatchables. More importantly, we can announce it now. CR and I, everyone, so it's like 10 for them, one for us. (laughs) It's all for you. We're hitting one for us. You're going to be involved with one for us. No, he's skipping. I I can't. I'm not going to be here. We've got to go to a pig and farming community. That's true. Collateral August 6th is the... uh, 15 year anniversary. Hey, homie. No, it's just an anniversary. It might not even be 15 years. <laughs> Who cares? It's just when it came out. We're doing it. <laughs> it's happening. So we have a bunch of good ones coming up, though. Stay tuned. <laughs>